back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. On today's podcast, I'm thrilled to welcome Tilda B., an AA member from the other side of the world in Nairobi, Kenya. Tilda grew up in London, where she did most of her alcoholic drinking before getting sober over 28 years ago. Within her first several years of sobriety, among London's vibrant AA community, she was offered a dream job in Kenya and has lived there ever since. Amidst a different culture, with its own norms related to alcoholism, Tilda's relatively brief experience in Alcoholics Anonymous in England helped her quickly acclimate to Nairobi's AA community. When Zoom emerged in the past several years, she reconnected with people with whom she'd gotten sober, and it was on Zoom that I first met Tilda. Her backstory is as colorful yet tragic as many in this podcast series, replete with a dysfunctional family rattled by alcoholism. Finding booze in people who drank, Tilda created her own world that alternated between drunken comfort and turbulent chaos. But, like many, she was still functional enough to achieve a higher education and some important jobs. But toward the end of her drinking, she lost what little control she'd had, and her life devolved into abject misery and self-loathing. By the time Tilda had crossed the threshold of Alcoholics Anonymous, she was thoroughly beaten by the disease. Sitting in the back of one of London's largest AA meetings, she finally surrendered to the people and the program. She quickly got a sponsor, worked the steps, attended daily meetings, sponsored other women, and became ensconced in AA service work. Though moving to Kenya relatively early in her sobriety meant leaving the comfort and security of her AA fellowship in England, Tilda understood the absolute importance of establishing a strong program in her new country. Throughout her long-term sobriety, she has become firmly rooted in Nairobi's AA community with fellow Brits, other expats, and local Kenyans at the heart of her program. Tilda's story is both fascinating and inspiring, and should provide hope and assurance to any AA members facing relocation to another city, state, or country that AA sobriety is attainable and sustainable anywhere in the world. So, sit back and please enjoy the next hour with my friend and AA sister, Tilda B. My name's Tilda, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Tilda. Thanks so much for being on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast today. It's really a, a treat to have somebody who is not only outside of the United States, but uh, you're on the other side of the world, aren't you? I'm in Nairobi in Kenya in Africa. So yeah, long way away, Howard. That is a long way away. I've, I've interviewed people in other parts of the world, but nobody from the uh, African continent yet. So you'll be the very first one. Congratulations Thank on that. You. Yeah. There's a lot of good recovery in Kenya. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. What is AA like in Kenya? Let's say compared, it sounds like you're from England. Yeah, I, I got sober in London uh -huh. in the Chelsea meetings. I then was offered an amazing job in uh, Nairobi. And I knew no one in Nairobi. I had no fellowship um, mm. in Nairobi. I didn't know anything. And I was two years sober. Uh-huh. I'd love to say it was a, a God job and I just turned it over to my higher power, but I think my will was still pretty much in charge there in my second year of, of recovery. Uh -huh. But I think HP was there too and, and uh, I got to Nairobi and I found meetings. 
some of them were like under a tree and or in a coffee <laughs> shop or in a cathedral. Uh-huh. But the fellowship was the fellowship. It was the same. Yeah, it's great. Were there a lot of expats from uh, from Great Britain there? There were a few. And yeah, mixed. I have a really mixed friendship group. And the biggest mix comes from recovery, actually. Um, and I'm kind of quite proud of that. It's not that common in, in Kenya. It's not segregated or anything, but everybody stays in their kind of bubble. And I don't stay in, I, I'm in the recovery bubble, which is the best place to be. And you see and meet fellowship with people of all backgrounds. And, and it's great. It's lovely. I'll bet you attract a lot of people to yourself and recovery by virtue of your shiny personality. I, I'm always glad when I see you in the London meeting that you and I attend on Zoom, which is very cool. Thank you. So do Kenyans or the people there in Nairobi, do they speak English or is there a language difference? There are two national languages. One is English and one is Kiswahili. The Nairobians, who are a very innovative bunch, uh-huh. have uh, created a new language, which is called Sheng, where they bring together English and Swahili in a kind of smush. Huh. And uh, it's, it's kind of the street, street language. And it's, yeah, no, it's good. It's, it's a very vibrant, exciting place to live. It's very cool. Now, do you speak do you speak that language too, or just a little? A little bit, a little bit, and and so do you. Do I? Yeah, you don't know it, but I bet you've heard Hakuna Matata. Hakuna Matata, yeah, that's Swahili, right? Lion King, yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Asante sana, Asante sana. That's thank you very much. Hakuna Matata means no, no worries. No worries. It's um, yeah, it's let go, let God. I like that. I never yeah. thought of that being a let go, let God. I knew it meant no worries, but it's kind of a neat way to think about it. Now, how long have you been in Kenya then? Uh, I came in 95, so it's like 27 years. Okay. Yeah. So you were sober two years before you got here. So uh, what are we talking about? 29 years of sobriety? 29 in February 2003. Yeah. And what's your actual sobriety date? 7th of February ni- uh, 1994. Yeah, I'm I'm just coming up for 10,500 days. I'm I'm like 40 <laughs> days short. That's what I'm working. You're one of those day counters too. I have a uh, fellow that I sponsor who whenever he shares he says thanks to uh, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and my higher power I've been sober 12,127 days or something like that and I I do that from time to time. It emphasizes the one day at a time aspect of the program, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm really living that at the moment. Day at mm-hmm. a time is just makes more sense to me than anything else. And um, I, I struggled with the Just for Today card when I first got sober. Mm-hmm. And I now, it's been revealed to me as um, not just as a tool of recovery, but as a, a, a way of living. And um, particularly getting through difficult times. I've had a very difficult year. I've got through it day at a time. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's getting me through. Yeah, it's really important. I've wondered about that day at a time uh, card. It seems uniquely British to me. I be, it's not incorporated into meetings the way it is in, in England. Yeah, I mean, it's quite old fashioned in its kind of dress becomingly and talk low and, you know, and that's the <laughs> bit I, I really resisted. You know, I'm a rebel. I'm an, I'm an alcoholic, for goodness sake. I don't want to dress becomingly, particularly not if I'm told to talk low, act courteously. You know, it's not where my recovery is. My recovery is in 
be honest, be show up, be who you are, get rid of the, mm-hmm. get rid of the damage, get rid of the defenses, you know, show up who you are. Mm-hmm. But there's some beautiful parts of the Just For Today card, which are about exactly that, about you can live this day only. Um, and I think my fear takes me into the past and, mm-hmm. and, and into the future. And the, the committee in my head will always, if I let it, want to take me back to what I should have done, what I should have said, what I didn't mm-hmm. do, what I... Or yeah. into the future. I don't want to go into the future and I don't want to go back either. Yeah, it's a real distraction from what's going on right now. If you're thinking about the past or the present uh, or the future, the only time you have to do that is in the present. So you miss what you could otherwise be thinking about and talking about. That's a brilliant way to think about that. Seeing you on the screen here, I'm going to make a, an assumption that you got sober very, very young. What was going on in February of uh, 94? that brought you to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous? I think it's a really interesting story. I don't tell it very often. I had been living in the States. Uh I'd been living in uh, Los Angeles and I'd been working in the film industry. And my drinking and using had got um, not just very regular, but it had got more and more extreme. The parties were... You know, it'd be two nights in a row without sleep or weekends mm-hmm. became Monday and Tuesday. And and it was a, a, a pretty fast lifestyle. I think we all thought we were kind of fabulous, but it was not that great. Um, and just one thing about Calif- about L.A., which is quite, quite funny, is uh, I lived in West Hollywood. At the end of my road was a bookstore called The Bodhi Tree. So very spiritual, mm-hmm. all the spiritual books. And uh, when I was hungover, I used to go and hang out in the bookstore. I was such a faker. And I, <laughs> I would sit on the floor and take down uh-huh. a book and pretend to be this spiritual Yoda type person. And somebody said to me around that time, Tilda, you, I think you've got a problem with alcohol. Have you ever looked at the 12 steps? And I said, No way. I read them this morning in the Bodhi tree. (laughs) In in a book that had appropriated them or from an actual Alcoholics Anonymous book? It was a daily reflection. It was a Hazelton daily reflection, which I bought and I still have, actually. But um, I just that's how dishonest I was. I thought you did the 12 steps in, you know, reading them and moving on. And I, I didn't realize any work was demanded of me. I didn't engage mm-hmm. with them. I didn't really do anything about it. So from the first time someone said that to you until the, the day you walked into AA, how long a period was that? I, I think the first time somebody said they thought I had a problem with alcohol was pretty young. I, I was pretty young. I was in my teens and I got sober when I was 25. So I, I would say 10 years. Um, so you knew about it for a long time, didn't you? Yeah. Where did that come out of? If people are telling you that in your teens and it's pretty noticeable, how did you evolve into being an alcoholic or at least abusing alcohol? I do believe I was born an alcoholic. Um, My family tree rattles with bottles. The branches are on every branch. Believe it or not, I had an overdose when I was very, very young, three or four. 
uh, I climbed up into the medicine cabinet. I was looking for these pills, which I always saw my mum take. Yeah, I wanted to get some of that. I, I've I've been told recently by my sister that my mum used to put Valium in my, my milk when I was a baby. Oh, my God. So my mum's died. I, I have no way of knowing if that's true or not. But I, it makes sense. She said I never cried. And I was just always peaceful mm. and slept a lot. Because you were drugged. I was drugged. And my father <laughs> is an alcoholic. So I was brought up with and around alcohol from a very, very mm. early age. As siblings, you've got a sister. Yeah, I've got a bunch of siblings. And um, we discovered a brother about three years ago, um, Ben. And we we knew he existed, but we didn't have any uh-huh. contact with him. He'd been adopted at birth and on my father's side. And he's an addict. Um, I knew he would be. It's strong in my family. There's a lot of a lot of addiction. How did all that play out? I mean, I get the part about your mom doing that. But how did it play out when you were a child? What was the household like? Well, there were lots of, of happy times, that, but there mm-hmm. was chaos generally. Um, my parents split up infidelities on both sides and Mm. it was kind of dog eat dog everybody out for themselves not much honesty not nothing sacred it's a harsh environment yeah and privileged you know not not on the breadline by any means at all my dad was like the guy from from mad men he he was that guy he was a creative guy and yeah um it all looked good but it wasn't and um our needs weren't met yeah we tumbled up that's what Charles Dickens said. We weren't brought up, we tumbled up. Tumbled up. What a great way to put it. So how old were you when you when you started to drink on your own accord or for effect? Probably seven or eight. We would regularly steal alcohol or go to family functions. I would black out, wet myself, be really inappropriate. There was a really big incident when I was 11 and it was, mm-hmm. yeah, it was really shameful. Um, it was a family celebration and I just, I just took, I think, four bottles of champagne into a room and locked myself in and I was carried out, um, oh. in a, in a terrible state. So that was pretty young. Seven to 11 is, a, a is really young. Most of the people I interview, they talk about first engaging with alcohol and or drugs at about 13 or 14, but 11 or even seven, when, when you were experiencing the aftermath of those times, what was there that made you feel like you wanted to do it again? If you were getting sick or you were wetting yourself or or there was chaos going on as a result, what were you thinking that made you want to do it again? I I guess that's the illness, Howard. I have no idea. I didn't get hangovers, but the fear was so great in me. It was the only medicine I knew. It was was just how I got through life. It was certainly how I socialized. I felt so small and quiet and vulnerable. And I had this big protective layer. I lived in London and Mm -hmm. I was social and I had to be cool. And I was doing a bit of modeling and Mm -hmm. I had to be a personality and I was clubbing. I started clubbing at Mm -hmm. 12 and I was quite well known on the clubbing scene. And And so, yeah, I needed fuel. My tank didn't have that kind of octane gas in it. I needed, I needed heavy fuel. Yeah. I, that's what I went for. The veil over the family secret sounds like it was pretty thick and immovable. It wasn't even 
a veil. It was just so normal. Normal. Yeah, it was. In what way? It was what everybody did. My fr- my parents had friends who did similar stuff. I used and drank with my father a lot. I gave up smoking marijuana when I was fifteen because it was making me sick all the time. It it was pretty chaotic. There wasn't much innocence. Um, and as a mother, I have two children. They're grown up now. But those mm-hmm. those years were very precious to me. Um, keeping them probably innocent for too long but I went through a lot of their childhood with them beside them and it was stuff I'd never done myself Um, and it was really beautiful to do that as a sober mum it was fantastic that's incredible Uh, something that when we had our children my wife and I before we had our first and my youngest now is 30 so uh, I've got two more older than that it was our intent to make sure that we didn't visit upon them some of the same abuse uh, that we had received. And I'm grateful for the fact that we that we never did uh, abuse them. Were your brothers and sisters, were any of them engaging in the same kind of behavior? Very much so. Um, my, my sister was killed in a car crash when I was 11, and the mm. family fragmented. Uh, we all grabbed a shard of glass and retreated to our various corners and metaphorically speaking. And my older brother got very lost in drugs and alcohol. He later became a, a Buddhist monk, actually, and lived in a lived in a monastery for about seven or eight years hmm. and doesn't touch drugs or alcohol now, but doesn't have a recovery program. And my next sister uh, always smoked a lot of bangi for years um, until she died. She died last year of lung cancer. What's bangi? Uh, sorry, that's Swahili. That dropped in. Uh, that's marijuana. Um, <laughs> okay. Apologies. I thought some kind of newfangled, newfangled uh, smokable. Yeah, but. No, um, yeah marijuana. Um, but a lot, you know. Yeah, that unfiltered smoke does a real damage to the lungs, doesn't it? I don't know if that's actually... I assume that's what yeah. um, was a contributing factor. And recently I was in England and I was clearing her house and uh, in her handbag, which had come from the hospital where she died, I found mm. a, a baggie of, of grass. And I, I just felt so sad that until the very end she was using. Um, so you lost your younger sister when you were 11. You lost your older sister later on. Uh, and your brother had the problem, but he became a monk. Yeah. Did that leave you uh, as the only one who was engaging, or are there more siblings? I have a younger sister and a younger brother, and they don't have addiction issues in the same way. They have the ism rears its head, and you can see it in some behaviors, particularly with my younger sister. But yeah, my younger brother's doing doing pretty well. Yeah. So you became the standard bearer in your family for alcoholism slash recovery. Yeah. How did you do in school? Were you a functional alcoholic? Not really. I was the kind of badass on the block. Yeah, I was very much the rebel, Mm -hmm. always in trouble, never won anything, never got, you know, cups or awards. Or I was always smoking Mm. behind the bike sheds or smuggling bottles of booze on school trips or it it was all about acting out everything I did was acting out um I dyed my hair crazy colors I was a punk I was Mm. you know I was a rebel and and yeah I realize now looking back I was I had a following people followed me did they yeah I was a bit of a leader but 
actually, I was quite alone. I didn't realize that until quite recently. Um, I had great friends, but I was always separate from them. I was the cool mm-hmm. one, which is a very restricting identity to wear. So I always had to be cool. And I always went out at weekends. And on Monday, my school friends would be like, where'd you go this weekend? Who did you meet? So I had to kind of live up to that in a way. Can you imagine what life would have been like if all of the electronic, uh, you know, Facebook and TikTok and Instagram, all yes. that had been around when, when you were that age? I mean, that's, it's crazy to think about what we were able to do back then without that technology. Well, that's another thing on my gratitude list. I'm very glad it wasn't around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When was the first time that you had some serious consequences from the drinking? I'm assuming being the leader of whatever going on around your school, you must have had run-ins every now and then. What did those look like? This is a really sad story. I was 13. It was my sister's gang, actually, really, her friends. But I was uh-huh. kind of on the periphery of, of her friends, and I would we, I would use with them and drink with them. This is your older sister? My older sister, Polly, who, just, who died last year. She had got some magic mushrooms and um, brought them back from France. She'd been in France, and she got these magic mushrooms. And it was, uh, I think it was a Monday night. And we all took these magic mushrooms. One of, one of our friends, he was 15 years old, and he left our house to go and stay with a friend, and he was, he was tripping on the mushrooms. And mm. he got onto the subway, the tube, as we call it in London, and he decided to walk along the track. Oh, no. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, the train ran him over. Yeah. How devastating to be that young and have that happen. And he was a fabulous boy. He was called Byron and he, he was from a very sort of bohemian, artistic, amazing kind of background. He was an only child. I think the thing about that that I still, it still burns me is that mm-hmm. at his uh, wake, we all got wasted and mm. um, I, we took drugs after that. And it was to remember Byron. Yeah. And I always think, what stupid, stupid children we were. Stupid. And uh, it's something I, I was very young, but I find it quite difficult to forgive how stupid yeah. we were. Yeah, and it, it, to me, it's the disconnect between the behavior and the consequences of that behavior. Exactly. And I think when you're 13 years old, the brain is just not wired entirely or sufficiently to suggest to us at that age that there's some kind of connection between what happened and why it happened. We kind of put aside the why part and just move forward. So I can imagine it was still possible, even though you guys all knew why he, how he died, that it must have been something you were telling yourself at the time to continue to use. I kind of think on some stupid level, I know it's the disease, the illness, but on some level, yeah. I think we thought it was glamorous. Um, I think we thought it was, there was something cool about it. And it was so uncool. Like live fast, die young, that whole, yeah. that whole thing. James Dean yeah. and that whole thing. So this happens at 13. You're the leader of the gang. People are dying around you, or at least you said after this funeral, things ramped up. What did that look like? I don't really know how to answer that, Howard. I, I, uh-huh. um, it was just normal. 
And so I took cocaine when I was 15. That became normal. Mm-hmm. Drinking was normal. It was all just what I did. It was, it really was the be all and end all um, in my life. Yeah, I got terrible exam grades and I, I went to Cambridge University to do my master's a few years back in, in sobriety, gift of sobriety. I, I wasn't unclever. Um, I'm not unclever, but I was just, I wasn't interested in school. I, I just wanted to be drinking um, or using. Yeah. That was the only thing I really wanted to do. So drinking and using were going hand in hand. Yeah cocaine you mentioned mushrooms earlier were there any harder drugs later on there were um later on Uh i i when i was at university i i switched on to ecstasy a lot but i think the big change that happened at university i i uh i went to university in brighton and in in england so you made it in even with uh did even with your bad exams you still made it in just but I kind of slightly um, talked my way in as well, um, <laughs> okay. you know. I decided I was lucky to get in because I I had messed up all my exams. Uh-huh. I decided I wouldn't drink when I got to university. Now, what eighteen-year-old going to university decides they're not going to drink? I mean, that shows you. I knew. I knew. You knew you had a problem. Yeah. Well, at that point, were you thinking maybe you ought to cut back or, or were you yeah. just convinced you had to stop completely? I just knew that tilde plus booze equals disaster. And I wanted a fresh start. I wanted a new start. Uh-huh. And I thought everybody would think I was great and I was going to be fantastic. And I was not going to mess up this time. I was not going to, to do all the things I'd done. I was going to get a great degree and I was going to just knuckle down and do this thing. I stayed sober for, I think, three months. I was kind of a completely different person. And uh, my friends stuck. While you were sober? Yeah. They were like, you're so quiet. What's happened to you? Um, Come on, let's go out. And I was like, no, I'm going to study. But of course, I fell off the wagon. Um, And I was I was taken home in a shopping trolley. Um, <laughs> I couldn't walk. No. And oh, uh, yeah, it wasn't the first or the last time. And uh, yeah. And not long after that, I started, I got into a relationship and I was living with my boyfriend and I started to lie about alcohol. That was the first time I, I really started uh-huh. to lie about my drinking. Was he a drinker as well? No, but he didn't like me drinking. He said, you change, you become a different person. And I don't like it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would sneak out, say I was studying, say I was seeing somebody or whatever. But I was, I would drink and then be like pretending I'm not drunk. And I was really drunk and I might have some cocaine to kind of make out I was sober and I wasn't sober at all. Did you deceive him? Yeah. Do you feel like he was genuinely deceived? Oh, no. No, no. He wasn't deceived at all. But he, Okay. I tried. He went along with it. Yeah, well, he'd call me out. He'd call me out and say, you've been drinking. No, I haven't. I haven't. Crazy. Doesn't sound like a great framework for a successful relationship. What happened? It didn't work out. I think I genuinely didn't know how to be honest. Mm -hmm. I manipulated every situation to my advantage. I would take whatever I could take. I've always been a kind person and I love people. But I thought if you didn't get caught, you weren't a liar. And if you didn't Mm. get caught... It was okay. Um, And that was my kind of moral code. 
get away with as much as you possibly can. Hmm. So it's like your alcoholism got together with your intellect and your ambition and all the other things to take you down the opposite road, so to speak. Yeah. Further and further away from myself. How did you feel about that at the time? I thought it was life. I thought it was what you did. I would have like moments of clarity where I would really feel desperate. And this was probably the biggest contributing factor to me getting sober as as young as I did is I would get to three or four in the morning. You know, at that point, you need to go to the loo a lot because you've drunk a lot. So you're in the bathroom a lot. Uh And I would look at myself in the mirror and I would start to say horrible things to myself. You are awful. You are Mm. a fraud. You are a fake. You are horrible. I would have these moments of just dark night of the soul and just Mm. real self-hatred. And uh, yeah, I I didn't know what was wrong with me. What did you see as a solution to that? Or were you helpless, feeling helpless or hopeless about it at that point? Well, I was still quite young, I guess. I was in my kind of late teens and early 20s. I think I just wasn't very happy. Um, And I think the solution was life. Life will pick up. Something fabulous will happen. I'll meet some fabulous man or I'll get some fabulous job or something outside of me will happen that will propel me forward through life and it will get better. So you were optimistic in the midst of this gloom. But it was coming from outside. That was the big thing. It wasn't me. It was going to be something external that would fix me. Yeah. Did you find that thing? No, I didn't find that thing. Not until I got into recovery. But out there using and drinking, it um, it wasn't going to happen. So you're in your late teens, early 20s. Did you complete the higher education? I did. I completed my education. I did did do well. I, I, I got a good degree and I got a good job. I worked in the film industry as a as an assistant to a producer. This is in London. Yeah, I I got to go to meetings in New York. I remember I had a, a meeting in the Twin Towers and I got to go to the Cannes Film Festival and, you know, some really nice things. A really interesting story that sums it up, actually, Howard. This was when I was working in Los Angeles, but I went to the Cannes Film Festival mm-hmm. and um, I was good at networking. I'm still good at networking. I'm a networker. And I got invited to all these parties. And one of the parties I went to, this shows the time, was um, Spike Lee's party for um, his movie, Something's Gotta Get... She's Gotta Have It. She's Gotta Have It, right. Yeah. Yeah. I'd already been to three parties before I got to Spike Lee's party. He met me at the door. I mean, I was a nobody, right? And there's Spike (laughs) Lee shaking my hand. I Uh get in. Everybody, it's like the Oscars. Everybody is famous. I mean, everybody and and Mm -hmm. A-listers. And I'm walking around and I think I'm pretty cool. I had three other parties to go to. And I said to my date, come on, let's go. Let's go to the next party. This is a bit quiet. And everyone said to me, Tilda, just wait. Don't go anywhere. And the booze wasn't coming very fast. And it was all a bit subdued. It just wasn't my jam. And I was like, no, you know, there's a better party up the road. They were like, just wait, hang fire, don't go anywhere. No, you know what, I'm going to go to another party. And I left. Five minutes after I left, Mm -hmm. Stevie Wonder got up on stage 
and in front of no more than 200 people jammed uh-huh. and people were just singing with Stevie and just uh-huh. jamming with Stevie and I was in traffic going to another party which I can't even remember because uh-huh. of that got to go got to move got to get more drugs and and alcohol on board and I missed it I missed it that kind of is a good picture of your priorities at the time yeah and a few years ago in recovery I got to see Stevie Wonder on in concert Did you? there were about 20,000 people but it was nice We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book, if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. So it sounds to me like with the things that happened after you got out of university, you were able to get a job, you were able to do pretty well, so you must have been a functional alcoholic because it doesn't sound like you'd stopped drinking during that time. Is that a correct assumption? Absolutely right. I um, I was a functioning alcoholic, and I have subsequently um, read up on it and found that I'm a, a, an epsilon, you know, a, a binge drinker, this is how it went. This was my playbook, right? Is I would, Monday was a recovery day. So I would go to the health food store, buy mm-hmm. tofu burgers, buy alfalfa sprouts, just have a, a detox. And that would last till about Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And either on Wednesday or Thursday, I'd probably go out, go out to dinner and have a bit to drink and say, oh, I'm only going to drink one. Um, never drank one. Mm-hmm. And then Friday was always a big night and Saturday was always a big night. And Sunday's a kind of coma day. You know, you have some drinks in the morning and maybe at lunch, mm-hmm. but you, and then it was back on the detox train again on Monday morning. So I was kidding myself the whole time, Howard. I was just kidding myself that this was a way to live, but I did hold down a job. Um, mm-hmm. The job I had was was incredibly poorly paid. I, I thought that I could take Mondays off. I just thought everybody's sick on a Monday, right? <laughs> everybody's, right. I mean, who works on a Monday? <laughs> and um, I thought it was normal. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a very close relationship with my stepmother. And she said to me at that time, how many Mondays have you been sick, Tilda? You're always off on a Monday. And I was like, I thought that was normal. You know, Friday afternoon, you're always off on a Friday afternoon, right? Because you have a Friday lunch and that goes on till Friday night. And I just thought this was normal. I really did think it was how everyone behaved. One of my uh, recent interviews was with a really close friend of mine here in Houston. And he used to talk about the same thing on Mondays and the same kind of Mondays you're talking about. And he said the first few times that he got away with it. He thought that meant he was allowed to do it. So he yeah. kept on doing it. And in one year, he, he had missed like 50 consecutive Mondays. And 
he just thought it was okay, and it never was, but somehow he, he got by. So your youth, your relative youth at this point, is getting you through the tough times without too many horrible consequences. But what's next? What, what goes on after that? Um, I moved to Los Angeles. What year was that? That was in, I think it was 92. I got to Los Angeles and everything accelerated. Um, hmm. I was using a lot more. I was drinking a lot more. I was partying a lot more. I was in a relationship with an Englishman who was working for an investment company. And mm-hmm. I was told, we were told, that if I um, married him, I would get an automatic green card because he was on a J permit. I'd always said to him I wasn't going to marry him. But suddenly I was being offered jobs and I like I liked the life. Mm-hmm. So I wanted a green card. I, I wanted to stay in the States. And so we went off to Las Vegas. We got stopped on the way by the cops for speeding. We had loads of drugs. We luckily got away with it. We stayed in like Camelot, you know, everything uh-huh. fake. And um, we got married in a plastic church. It was the most inauthentic, you know, fast food type wedding with absolutely nothing precious or special about it at all. Sounds like a good thing to do in a blackout, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it was a blackout. It, it, the whole thing was a bit of a blackout. And, and ironically, and this is where my higher power really just was having fun, is uh, when we got back to Los Angeles after our jag to Las Vegas, my husband lost his job. He was fired the day he got back. Oh, no. So this this marriage, we were together as, as, as partners, but it wasn't a real love marriage. Yeah. How long did that last? It lasted until I got into recovery. He, he really looked after me and I was kind of like a broken doll mm-hmm. and he would sort of keep me together. He, he kind of looked after me and, and it was a really sad time in my life. I was, yeah. um, I was 24. I had so much going for me and yet I was, I was broken and I, I needed to be kind of carried through life. Mm-hmm. So that was that was really sad, but it, it looked good from the outside. Lots of partying, and and then I was working. Uh, I was back in England. We moved back to England, and uh, we're still together. We were still living together. So you never got your green card? No. So you're back in England. Back in England, and um, I was working on a film based in Pinewood Studios, and I was the continuity girl. So it was quite an important job. And basically, you can't start filming until the continuity girl is there. It's an important role. Because you have to see everything too, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I was so unreliable um, that they would they would film without me. And uh, the early starts, you know, in filming, it's long days, 16, 17 hour days, you know. And I was partying and not getting enough sleep. And... I, um, yeah, I didn't do a good job. And, and, and we went to, uh, we went on location with that job to the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And it was just all about drugs and alcohol. And uh, even in the most beautiful, beautiful setting, I just, just wanted to smoke or, or wanted to drink. And hmm. it was pretty sad. 
And of course, continuity is one of those jobs that the mistakes that continuity is supposed to prevent are noticed and noted on film, right? Exactly. What were they telling you about that? You know, you were missing work. What, what was the quality of your work like when you were there? Just shameful. I mean, whatever I got right, I got right by chance and luck. And I mean, I was just all over the place. How is it you weren't fired is what I'm wondering. I don't know how I wasn't fired. But I remember on the flight to the Caribbean, I was in business class and um, the girl with the trolley came around and, you know, the little bottles and... Oh, yeah. And uh, she said, what do you want? Just take whatever you want. And I said, can you just give me like a few rows? She just got a duty-free bag and just swiped all of these little bottles into this bag. Uh -huh. And uh, I just sat in the hotel. This is in the Caribbean. Just just drinking. So, yeah, I didn't think I did a good job at all. Now, this is just a few years before you get sober, too, isn't it? It's a very important part of how and why I got sober because the, the movie finished at the end of 93. Uh-huh. I, I felt grey and um, pretty unhappy. Um, I wasn't taking as much cocaine as I did in, in the States, and I was missing it, and... I was finding the adjustment back to London quite hard, but it was the Christmas season, right? So Christmas is party time. And uh, what happened is I got to February and I was still blacking out every night, still causing chaos, still causing havoc. Mm -hmm. And it was February and I counted, you know, everybody gets, gets drunk at weekends, right? So I thought, okay, well, how many weekends have there been since not New Year's Eve, since because that's a free one, right? Yeah, everybody's sure. everybody's uh -huh. wasted on New Year's Eve. Yeah, so right. New Year's Day, how many blackouts yeah. had I had? And I worked out the number of weekends, and on my fingers, right, there were let's say five weekends, and how many blackouts that night, that night, that night, that night, that night, that night, and these were blackouts where I'd really upset people. Um, yeah. I'd passed out in my front door, um, passed out all over the place, real proper, proper blackouts. I realized that I'd had 14 notable blackouts and this was February the 6th that I did this math and I was sitting wow. in my flat in Fulham and, uh, I did this horrible math and it was a Sunday. I, I just thought I need help. In fact, it was a Monday and I phoned mm -hmm. Alcoholics Anonymous and we had those big directories, mm -hmm. the big, huge directories. And I flicked through and I found a number for Alcoholics Anonymous. How did you know to, to, to go after Alcoholics Anonymous as your first call? It wasn't my first call. I had tried therapy. Mm -hmm. I had tried not drinking. I told you about the tofu burgers and the alfalfa sprouts, but it always ended up the same. It was never, it was, it was the same result every time. And I'd had a lot of people say to me, the way you drink is, is not normal. I was very shame-based. I'd get home from, from a club and I had to clean my house from top to bottom or yeah. I would start gardening. I'm a real home person. I like, I like mm -hmm. my home. I think I did it out of guilt and shame. So what happened is, is my, my stepmom, who I'm very close to, she worked with a guy who was in recovery. Mm. And I'd heard about this um, mm. from her. And I thought, okay, well, 
I know AA is going to be full of men mm-hmm. and they're going to have long coats on with strings around their waist <laughs> and a brown paper bag with a cor- <laughs> of something in it. There's not going to be anyone like me because and I'm going to go there and they're going to say, no, no, sweetheart, you've got the wrong place. Go, go home. Not, mm. not here. So I phoned AA thinking that they would tell me, no, no, you, no, it's not, not you. Mm-hmm. But they said, come to a meeting, six o'clock. Mm-hmm. And they said, just come, just come and see, see what it, see what it's like. It costs you nothing. It costs you the bus fare or the taxi fare. Mm-hmm. So I, I did it. I dressed up and I thought, wow, they're all going to be amazed when I walk through the door. <laughs> you know, wow, drum roll. Uh-huh. I was late. Um, and of course, in my mind, they got the time wrong, right? Right, sure, yeah. And I walked in and I sat at the back and I was struck. Struck sober, struck dumb by the honesty, struck by this language that I knew. And they weren't all men and they weren't, none of them were in raincoats. Um, And they looked good. They looked really good. And they they came and they, they lifted me up and they gave me their number and they told me where to go the next day. Mm-hmm. I just wanted what they had. I just knew I needed what they had. That was February 7th, 94, and I, I never went to rehab. I've stayed sober every, ever since. I haven't relapsed. I've had difficult times. I, I, I think in about four months, I had that hole in the soul, who am I, without yeah. drugs and alcohol. Um, I got kind of suicidal at times, but I just kept going to meetings. I did, I did like 120 meetings in my first 90 days, and I just listened. I just wanted it so badly. Sounds like yeah. it had a profound effect on you from day one. Yeah. Did you get yourself a sponsor right away? I did. I got myself my first sponsor. I just she was just a, a woman who was around, and 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 actually it didn't work out. And mm-hmm. then I got a um, a wonderful sponsor called Jane. There's uh, Linda. I was her first grand sponsee, sponsee. Oh. Oh. and uh, she's she's for anybody who doesn't know her, she's like a she's a pillar of London AA. She's yeah. an amazing woman. She just bless her. I love listening to her speak. Yeah, she's she's just she's amazing. She really is. So Jane became your sponsor. At what point did you start working through the steps? Immediately, and uh, mm. we got to step seven but step four and step five was you know I can remember the weather you know it was one of those kind of profound experiences of belonging feeling accepted feeling loved unconditionally Mm -hmm. not judged it was really one of those moments of recovery where you know you're in the right place where it's like this is what recovery is Mm -hmm. to go through all those character defects, go through all of those shortcomings and and still be loved and um, to go through my whole searching and fearless moral inventory. And I was as honest as I knew how to be at that time. Yeah, it was, it was really powerful, really powerful. What an amazing uh, realization. So early in sobriety, a lot of people don't get that right away. It takes them a long time. 
You mentioned some of those uh, down times during your early sobriety. What sort of things did you do to get through those? I I went to meetings. I I went to so many meetings. I was fascinated and compelled, utterly compelled by the world of recovery. And I hmm. guess for me, all of it was wonderful. I, I had a fantastic group of friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm friends with my buddies from that time, two of whom are very close friends to this day. If there was one thing, it was the possibility of change. It was the transformations I saw around me daily. Mm-hmm. And the unconditional love was just something I'd never experienced before in my life. The safety I felt and feel in the rooms is, is just balm on my soul. The coming to believe for me was, was slow, but so beautiful. And um, I just felt that flawed as I was, the program might work for me. And uh, it was the first time I'd ever believed anything would really change. It sounds like a sincere hope that you had that was developed as a result of doing the things that we always tell people to do. Go to meetings, get a sponsor, read the book. So at what point did you feel like you had a spiritual awakening? I think my very first meeting was absolutely God-given. I, I don't know how it happened, Howard. I don't know how I picked up the phone directory. I don't know how I thought of AA. I uh-huh. have no idea. There was no internet in those days. There were no, there were very few movies or any of the cultural stuff. I have no idea. When you said earlier about being struck, that's the first thing I thought of was that coming to that first meeting must have been just the moment of clarity, the God moment, the turning point in your life it really was and it was it was I was so lucky day one and and the compulsion to drink didn't leave me but the knowledge that I could no longer drink that I I was allergic to alcohol it was such a relief it was like Mm -hmm. a diagnosis I'd been searching for my whole life Hmm. and it just made total sense I knew I was an alcoholic. I never had a problem saying it. Yeah, and that meeting that you went to, certain meetings, and it's this way in Houston, Texas, and in other places that I've been, there are just certain meetings in certain places that just have the reputation of being the place where people who have nothing to be hopeful about They get there, and something about that meeting just changes them. Uh, And that may not be the same for every meeting, but that particular meeting, I know because you and I have been going to it by Zoom, the meeting you went to in London is much like some of the bigger meetings that we have here. And it's the, the meetings have this reputation of being the ones where lots of people will come up to the newcomer afterwards. Lots of people will invite them out for coffee or ice cream after the meeting. Lots of people who will give out their phone numbers and and ask a man or a woman, do you have a sponsor? If not, let me help you find one or I'll do it. It, And and that particular meeting, from what I've heard in the last two years being involved by Zoom, that meeting is it in in London. Is that a a fair assessment? Absolutely. It is. It's such a powerful meeting. And in London, and particularly in those days, we didn't do ice cream, Howard. We did tea and toast. Would you like to go and have tea and toast? <laughs> tea and toast. Oh, how, 
How amazingly British that is. (laughs) That's wonderful. So uh, one of my goals of the podcast always has been to ask people about the time between when they got sober and today and certain things within that period of sobriety, because it's easy for someone sitting in a room to listen to someone 28 years and think, you've got it all. You've been sober all these years. But they get to hear about how you got sober, what it might have been like. But what's going on in the 28 years that you can point to that are evidence of a, a program that works in times that are bad as well as in times that are good. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I'm very proud of being a sober mum. And my children have, have and repeatedly, I mean, they're, they're 22 and 25, but they've said to me on so many occasions, we're so proud of you, mum, for, for being there for us. So they've never seen you drunk? They've never seen me drunk. And, and that, I know there's a lot of people who, who don't have that story, who had children before they got sober, but one of the things I'm grateful for all the time is that I have had the absolute privilege of being a sober mum, and that's God-given. You know, one of the things about being an alcoholic and the kind of childhood I have, and I would suspect for someone like yourself and the childhood you had, one of the I had huge fears about having children because I just didn't, I didn't know what what being a normal parent was because I didn't have normal parents. I didn't know what a functional household looked like because I grew up in a dysfunctional one. I had a lot of fear going into having children. But what I found was the same people who gathered around me to help me get through fear of other things were the same people who gathered around me to give me the good advice and the good feedback about being a father. And here's what you need to know, Howard, about being a good father. Did you get that from the women that that you were close to at the time? I did. I I really did. I kind of guess also I used my childhood as a cautionary tale. I didn't want to (laughs) be, I didn't want my children to grow up in the the way I grew up. And I Mm -hmm. wanted to break the chain. I really believe I was, was part of a chain of alcoholics that probably stretched way back in time. And I wanted to break that chain. And if I was to have children, I wanted them to grow up knowing about alcoholism and taking steps, you know, to not activate the mental obsession. Um, and both of them drink, but not not to excess. Mm-hmm. They're very aware and I think they have a healthy respect. I think the other thing you asked me, Howard, you said how dealing with hard times. And I mentioned earlier on, I had a very difficult year last year. How'd you get through that? I got through it with the help of this program the love and the support, um, often from people I really didn't even know that well. I'd get mm-hmm. a message from just some sweetheart in the rooms who I'd touched with a share or who related and mm-hmm. they were able to reach out to me and just send me love and I'd get through another day. Luckily, uh, the pandemic had really got me into to Zoom meetings and, and program was strong. And um, where fear had been when I was actively drinking and using, I had a certainty. And I call that certainty the great spirit, my higher power or God. Mm -hmm. And it was, Tilda, you're going to be okay. And Mm. I'm still working on the okay, to be honest. I I still have challenge in my life. But I get through it day at a time. And uh, I talk to my sponsor regularly. I'm also in another fellowship. I'm in Al-Anon. Mm-hmm. I'm working through all the slogans 
The slogans are really emphasized in Al-Anon, actually, and um, it's really mm -hmm. helpful. In AA, we just tend to see them up on the wall, but in Al-Anon, you work through them. And uh, I find them really inspiring and live and let live. Wonderful yeah. slogan. Don't judge other people. Look to yourself. Look inward. Make the change in yourself. One of my favorites in Al-Anon, and I spent some time in Al-Anon as well, is I may not like the situation, but I've, I've got to like myself in the situation. Yeah, that's I, a good that's, one. That's so important. What role has service work and sponsorship played in your sobriety and the quality of your sobriety? Yeah, I have a lot of sponsees at the moment. Mm -hmm. It's a complete two-way process. I love my sponsees. Some are, they're all over the world, and uh -huh. uh, some of them I haven't met. We just talk on Zoom or on, on mm -hmm. WhatsApp. Some of them live in Nairobi and mm -hmm. uh, or in Kenya. And they give me as much as I, I learn so much. Again, that's another of those flips. You know, when I, before I got into recovery, I knew everything. Yeah. Um, and, and now I'm, I'm really happy to learn and to grow and to, to, yeah, take on board what people have to say and, and yeah, feel enriched by that and uh, we've got a convention coming up in, in Kenya in, in November and we've got a, a women's group who are uh -huh. going to fellowship together and travel together and it's just beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. How many people are they expecting to that? Probably about 300, maybe more, but from all over East Africa. Yeah, anyone who wants to come and come and visit Kenya, it's great opportunity. I think particularly now as, as, as so many people do Zoom meetings as part yeah. of their schedule face-to-face -face in Zoom and it's the first word of the 12 steps. The we is so important and uh, it's it's what makes the difference. It certainly has made the difference in my recovery is yeah. the we, the fellowship has has got me through. You know, you're a woman of wisdom that I think goes beyond the number of years that you have sober. And to me, oh, anybody you. whose wisdom exceeds the number of years has hit that multiplier factor of AA, where you're doing just the right things that all add up to something that is just extraordinary. And the fact that you can live in a place like Kenya, away from the people you got sober with, and still build a life around AA. So many people, when they move to other cities or countries, their programs really get slack. I've known certainly a number of people over the years who have lost their sobriety because the meetings there are just not like they were where I came from. And uh, they stay away and they end up, a lot of them do end up drinking. So it sounds like you had just the right plans when you got there. Did you look up AA immediately? Yeah. In fact, the guy I was working for was, was in, in the fellowship. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I, I got to meet people. But I think today, Howard, I would just like to say that I'm a member of a club that Linda, who I mentioned earlier, calls the No Matter What Club. And we don't have a logo or a website or an app. <laughs> it's just an absolute certainty mm -hmm. that everything that's good about me is given back to me or given to me through recovery and working this program. Mm -hmm. And I am, have no illusions. If I take that first drink, I am right back at probably worse than, than I was when I got in. And so it's, it's, I'm really happy to say it's not something, it's not an option for me. I've, I've got enough problems to deal with and dealing with them sober <laughs> is a thing. So yeah, no problem would be solved for me. Uh, there is no problem that would be solved by alcohol. 
that's the cool thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is it is a self-proving program because yeah. each time we get through a difficult situation, we can look back and see how God has helped us work through it. And what's interesting to me, uh, Tilda, is that there always seems to be uh, a, a sense of God has helped me this far, but the next situation I'm still worried about as if he won't help me in the next one. It's like God's success rate is 100%. And yet I look at the next situation coming up thinking, oh, it's not going to get through this one. And it, it just never fails. My biggest fantasy is a time when I will not even have to think about it going into a situation knowing that God's at 100% for me in that situation. I think I'm closer to that now than I ever have been simply because my the amount of involvement. But it sounds like yeah. you're you're right around the corner from that too. Well, you asked me earlier about service and yeah. um, I'm one of those alcoholics who just I learn something and I forget it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the daily service, the, the prayers in the morning, prayers at night, not always, but sometimes connection with a meeting with a sponsor or a sponsor remind me I, I need to be reminded of the not just the dangers of this illness but the possibility of of this wellness that we get in sobriety and that's a really beautiful thing my day today has been a lot lot better than it could have been because i was on my knees at at seven o'clock this morning i did my prayer meditation i was reminded of the things i needed to be conscious of and that i needed front and center as i approach the day and so this program isn't a passive program. It's an active program. And as you say, the batting average is 100%. Yeah, when I remember that, it's a good day. It is. And I want to just tell you right now before we wrap up, you are the answer to my prayer. Oh. And the prayer was, and always is, that I will find the right people at the right time to tell their stories on this podcast. And that oh. somewhere down the line, somebody somewhere who neither you or I know is going to be touched by it in a way that may save their lives. And my feeling is if one person is helped in that way, then all of this has been successful. All of this has been God's work, not mine. Absolutely. I want to thank you again for doing this. Uh, so, uh, again, many thanks. I love you, and I hope that your sobriety continues to improve and enrich your life. I like to say that, too. Sobriety enriches my life. Absolutely. And I wouldn't be sticking around AA if it didn't, would you? I, I would have asked for I would have asked for a refund if it didn't work. You know, I'm a cynic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, give me all my misery back. back. And the interest. <laughs> no, I'm I'm a very happy customer today and gratitude is at, at the core of everything. I, I love this program and Howard, I'm so grateful to you. And um, I love your energy in the rooms. You're, you're, you're just great. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And again, many thanks for doing this. Thanks, Howard. Thank you so much. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Tilda B., for sharing her story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. 
I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from this show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.